doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Mina, not only about being autistic, but about being diagnosed late as an adult. According to AutismSociety.org, autism is a complex, lifelong developmental condition that typically appears during early childhood and can impact a person's social skills, communication, relationships, and self-regulation. The autism experience is different for everyone. It is defined by a certain set of behaviors and is often referred to as a spectrum condition that affects people differently and to varying degrees. While I had a generalized understanding of what autism is before having this discussion, Mina really changed my perception of what autism is and what it's like to live with an autistic brain. She did a really incredible job explaining what it's like, at least for her, because obviously this is a spectrum disorder and it's going to be different for everyone. She'll talk about how an autistic brain is almost like it's running on a different operating system from what would be considered a normal brain. And also, who's to say what is normal? And this idea that people have to be normal and have to fit into social boxes can be incredibly harmful for autistic people and caused her a lot of harm because she went undiagnosed for so long. So for Mina, the quest to function within the boxes that society demands of us went against her nature without her knowing it because she didn't have this autism diagnosis until later. As with anyone, having to live outside of your nature caused Mina some severe depression, as well as CPTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. This was something I wasn't familiar with. So the idea is that Traditional PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is usually tied to a singular traumatic event, whereas complex post-traumatic stress disorder is tied to repeated trauma over a long period of time. There's just so much about this conversation that was absolutely fascinating to me. It's a real deep dive into human behavior, why we are the way we are, and how we define the way that we are, and how we put each other into boxes, and how sometimes that can be so harmful if you get put in the wrong box, or if you don't fit in a box. We all perceive the world in our own unique way, and if we can't agree on what we're perceiving, that can cause some real serious problems. But if we're willing to be open and listen to each other and understand that our perception of the world isn't the only one and isn't necessarily even the correct one, that there can be many correct ways to see the world, it can really open our eyes to understand each other in a much deeper way. And Mina really provided that for me in this conversation, and I know she will for you as well. It's a really great episode of the podcast today. I'm really excited to share it with you, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. This podcast is produced with the support of listeners on Patreon, and we have a brand new patron this week. So every time someone signs up on Patreon, I offer them the option to be thanked by their name or by a company name or a, a pseudonym or whatever it is that they want to be thanked by. And this person has been has chosen to be referred to as their company name, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, which is a family business. So it's something exciting for me to be able to say thank you for your support and the, this person has also been a huge supporter on Instagram, which I have definitely noticed, uh, which I also very much appreciate. You know, one of the best ways to help get the word out about this show is to support us on social media. So, all around Foundation Waterproofing, thank you so much for the support. I really appreciate it. I'll be adding your name to the end credits of every episode for as long as you are supporting the show on Patreon. Thank you. I have a gift of a major pain coaster to send you, which will go out at the beginning of March, since I send out gifts once a month. 
Right now, 100% of the financial support for this podcast is coming through Patreon. So if you love this show, if it's a part of your weekly ritual and you'd like to help to support it, to see it keep going and keep growing, head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to sign up for a monthly contribution. It starts at $2 a month and goes all the way up to $25 per month for our Patreon producers, who I thank every week by name. Thank you so much, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien, our Patreon producers, for helping to keep this show going. And if you'd like to take part and join the Patreon community, you gain access to gifts and monthly bonus episodes. Head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. We got some great comments on our website about our episode last week with Sydney talking about Friedrich's ataxia. This is from JC. She is such a strong and beautiful young woman. It is amazing to watch her grow and see what she can and does achieve. As her friend, it is such a proud moment for her and us to see her get more info out on F.A. And this is from Courtney. She's always been an inspiration to me, and it has nothing to do with her disability. I've known her since the year 2000. She was meant for greatness. Always knew she'd be a star. Love the podcast. Love Sydney Dupre. So if you haven't yet listened to last week's episode, it was really, really excellent. I highly recommend you check it out. And thank you both for the comments. I love hearing from listeners of the show. Speaking of, we got another really incredible comment. This was from our episode with Janelle about CRPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. This comment is a bit on the long side, so bear with me here, but it's very, very worth sharing. This is from Coco Amy. What's the one thing you can give away and it changed your whole life? Free will. 17 years ago, when I laid on the bathroom floor screaming in pain and I was no longer a true person, but instead a helpless woman that had to make hard decisions, like who will raise my kids because I certainly can't like this. When I tried all the treatments and they failed, I was sent to a doctor that said he could help. Of course, I did not believe him because in two years, everything just got worse with each invasive treatment. He pulled out his script pad and wrote a script for five milligrams of oxycodone and my husband filled it. He was a wonderful doctor. I took that 5 milligram oxycodone and it worked. The medicine brought my pain level down from a 10 to a livable 5. I had some concerns though, and I had a long talk with him about my concerns. I voiced my worry about what if these pills just quit working or don't work as well as they did as time goes by. He explained that usually does happen eventually, but it's different for everyone. He said around year 4 to 10, I would probably need to increase the dose, or I may not. It would just depend on my disease process in my body. I asked him if this is safe, and he told me, of course it's safe. He explained that he had patients on morphine for 30 years, and they are on very high doses and alive and doing well. I did the research and he was correct, so I said to myself, okay, something that lets me be a mom and wife again. I still struggled because a five isn't fun either, but you learn how to push through that five and make life workable and sometimes enjoyable. Well, fast forward six years later and my pain doctor retires and the DEA slash CDC guidelines start ramping up and a new doctor has inherited me. Unfortunately, pain management has become a risky business and my new doctor is scared of me because she does not know me, so I must prove myself all over again. Due to the guidelines, I endured more unnecessary procedures and organ removal. So even though it was time to up me, it never happened. So for 17 years, I have been at the same beginning 5 milligram dose, only now my body has incurred more damage. One of their surgeries damaged my pudendal nerve. Other surgeries removed my bladder, colon, uterus. All separate surgeries that I had to endure to prove myself. I am now in kidney failure, 
which never had to happen. My nephrologist has explained to me if they had just honored the original agreement, I would not be in kidney failure. The oxycodone, when taken correctly, is the least damaging thing to my organs. The off-label Lyrica, Amitriptyline, Topamax, Flomax, and the list goes on and on. Those medications were not necessary if they honored the original agreement, nor did any of those medications help. They made me feel more sick. I lost my ability to live a full life. Oxycodone, on its own, never did that to me. I've never been high from any substance or medicine in my life, so I struggle with that concept. I don't drink alcohol, never really did, or smoke cigarettes. So this so-called high, I just don't understand it. I don't understand who would want to take opioids if you did not really need them. They have side effects too, but they are livable side effects compared to my pain conditions. I'm grateful for the medicine. The oxycodone saved my life and saved my family enormous grief from watching my suffering. But I gave away my free will. What I mean by that statement is before oxycodone, it was my pain on the bathroom floor. I owned it. But every day after I started oxycodone, it became their pain to play with, like I was a lab rat. By their or them, I mean the government slash CDC. The government and CDC control it. They decide whether I'm in pain or not. At least on that floor, in the bathroom, it was my free will. Now they own me like a piece of furniture. They can throw me out to the curb or be kind to me. The government tells my doctor whether I can spend Christmas with my family, whether I can celebrate my children's birthdays. It's pure ownership over my humanness. It's all up to them. Being under-medicated all these years, with additional damage from surgeries to my body, has my pain levels of fives, now they are sevens and eights, because a promise was not kept. I used to have good days and bad days. Now I just have bad days and worse days. I don't regret the medicine. It saved me then. But I do regret how easily a promise can be broken when it's about one of the most important things in your life, your health. It's not the doctor's fault. They are being bullied and scared. The ones that stood up against the CDC guidelines would lose their license and their practice. We've all heard the stories about that happening. So free will, where does it stand now? Wow, what a comment. I was blown away when I read this because it really puts into words something that we talk about a lot on this show that we're always concerned about, this idea that government changes, regulations changing in pain management, in opiates, has such a profound impact on the lives of the people who need them. And this just really painted a picture. This idea that by even seeking pain management, you're giving up your free will. That is the powerful image that I'm having a hard time shaking. Nobody is denying that there are dangers with opioids. No one's denying that there is an opioid crisis in this country. But to deny pain management to people who need it to try to solve that problem is the absolute backwards wrong thing to do. And it is causing so much suffering. So that's why it's so important that people like Janelle are working with the National Pain Council to try to change these laws to make it easier and more approachable for people who are in pain to get pain management. And I will continue to amplify stories like this on the podcast. And I, you know, I was just really impacted by that comment. And I really wanted to share it because this is such an important topic. People do not need to be suffering the way that they are because of stupid laws. I feel so passionately about that. So thank you for your comment. And of course, if you want to come on the show and 
Tell us your story. You're very welcome. And always, you know, as always, that goes for anyone who listens to this show with any sort of chronic illness, invisible illness, rare disease, disability. Write to me, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. I'm always looking for people to interview, and I would love to share your story. Regular listeners of the show will remember India, our friend, the retired nurse, who sends us some information about some of the medical conditions that we discuss on this show. And I don't have anything from India to share this week. Instead, I just wanted to share a message to India. We've been in touch, and she has been having a rough time with her chronic health issues. So I just wanted to harness the power of this community to send some positive vibes in India's direction. I know we're all spoonies here, but whatever spoons you have to spare, let's send some to India because she could use them right now. So India, we care about you so much. You're such a valued member of this community. And we just really want all the best for you on your medical journey. So let's send out some positive energy in India's direction. I'm still waiting for the full results from my liver biopsy, so I don't have anything to share yet this week, except for the thought that I'm just wondering if anyone else relates to this, that as someone with a chronic illness who is on leave, who does not work, um... I don't like weekends because weekends are the time where I know I'm not going to hear from my doctors. I know I'm not going to get test results. So I'm just glad that it's Monday. As I'm recording this, it is Monday. And I'm just got my fingers crossed that I'll get those results in my my chart at any moment. Uh, Yeah, and that hopefully I'll have something to share with you next week. We'll see. I I still don't know. Um, But yeah, I'm just curious if if anyone else in the chronic, chronic illness community feels this way, that weekends are always this, this dead zone where I sort of dread the weekends because I know that I'm not going to hear back from doctors over the weekends. Because it feels like I'm always waiting to hear back from a doctor about one thing or another. So if you feel that way, let me know. I'll remind you that my guests and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any medical action based off of what you hear on this show without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we're going to jump into our truly fantastic conversation with Mina about autism. Mina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm very excited to chat with you today. This is a new topic for the podcast, and that's always exciting to learn about uh, a condition from the point of view of the person experiencing it. Yeah, that's why I'm here. I know it's it's helpful for a lot of people. In fact, that's actually how I figured out what was going on with me was from watching like YouTube videos and, and listening to first person accounts. So, oh, wow. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you might yeah. be doing that for someone else today. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Mina, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? This question is always hard, but I watched, I did my homework. I watched a lot of the, or listened to a lot of the other major pain podcasts to see how other people answered it. But, um, so personally, um, I was born in Southern California, raised in Southern California, went to school in Southern California, and then spent two years in Alaska. Um, a very interesting two years coming from San Diego. Um, I, uh, live in Southern California right now with my two dogs. I have a retired service dog, Saffron, and then a little dog, Lemon. And so that's my constant companionship. And I live in the mountains, so it's nice and quiet. Um, I would tell you about hobbies, but for the last two years, I moved and then COVID happened. And so I'm out of my routine and I don't think I have any hobbies right now. But but I used to. I used to power lift, hike, um, read a lot, uh, things like that, go to concerts and shows all the time. But yeah, I've pretty much been just uh, cabin bound for for the two years of COVID. (laughs) Yeah, you know, this is a great time to live in the mountains. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just walk around in the fresh air. And I'm still trying to figure out what else there is to do around here because we're pretty rural. But um, Mm -hmm. 
yeah, so that's kind of what I do personally. Um, professionally, I was super big into animal behavior. I spent over a decade um, working in animal training and animal behavior through zoos, animal shelters, uh, with horses, um, and with my own private consulting practice. Uh, and then my, so my, my BS is actually in animal science and equine science. And then a decade after I graduated with my bachelor's, I went back to school and um, went for my master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology, which is basically the geeky version of a business degree. Um, <laughs> so looking at like data and psychological principles and how that relates to business. Uh, and yeah, just graduated actually at the end of 2021 and have just now started uh, a new business um, doing consulting and coaching on topics of disability accommodations uh, and neurodiversity. Wow. Well, it sounds like you're the perfect person to have on this podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Um, yeah. yeah. And we actually have a mutual friend, Laura, who appeared on the podcast a couple months ago talking about social anxiety. That's yeah. how we were connected. Um, yeah. Yeah. And she's told me a bit about you and I'm really excited to hear your story because I've, I've heard some of the bullet points and it's very, very interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. Laura, Laura's great. I think um, we actually grew up on the same street together when we were kids and we had no idea. We yeah, met after wild. all of that through friends later, uh, connected on the topic of dogs. As you know, she talked about in her show, she does um, like meal trims and I'm an animal behavior. So our, our friendship kind of just started from us shooting ideas back and forth. You know, I'd ask grooming questions and she would ask behavior questions. And now we talk about mostly our major pains. So <laughs> we've, left, <laughs> we've left the dog world and I'll talk about a lot of personal stuff, but yeah, yeah. she's a, a great um, person have to talk to yeah well laura thank you so much for connecting this conversation today we appreciate yeah. it and speaking of our major pains let's dive into it uh mina what is your major pain uh, so i have a long list um i think my my primary uh diagnosis that i identify with is that i am autistic um because of being diagnosed late in life and, and kind of how society treated me because of how I was different and, and how my environment interacted with me, I ended up also with uh, like major depression since I was very young and that's been ongoing, um, as well as having uh, CPTSD and fibromyalgia. Um, I'm also ADHD, which is something I realized even later than realizing I was autistic. Um, that plays a little bit less of a, a a factor into my life. But yeah, I would say my primary diagnosis is probably not being autistic. Yeah. And CPTSD, for those who aren't familiar, is a yeah. com complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which yeah. I know and because it, I asked you before we started recording. Yes. <laughs> yeah. CPTSD is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's not in like the DSM yet, um, but it's something that is still commonly used with a lot of therapists. It's still something that they'll diagnose um, people with. Uh, but yeah, you know, the medical books don't always <laughs> stay up to date with the information that we have. So, whereas PTSD is often from a singular traumatic event, um, CPTSD is usually uh, small events um, that repeated over time where you essentially create a, a situation where you have a lot of learned helplessness, you feel like you can't escape situations, um, and it's kind of like repeated abuse. And there, the abuse may seem like less traumatic than what would cause just normal PTSD, um, but because it's just constant and systematic, it uh, chips away at your psyche and kind of rewires your brain to, to be in fight or flight a lot most of the time. It sounds exactly like medical gaslighting. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, I think honestly, it's probably one way 
to get CPTSD. A really common way, uh, which is when mine started, but certainly not where mine ended, um, is in childhood too. You know, anytime when you're in a situation where you're not in control of getting the access to your your needs and your safety getting met mm-hmm. um, and somebody else's and you just can't get it. Uh, that's where it happens. So it happens with kids who, you know, maybe their caregivers aren't safe mm-hmm. um, or it can happen in the medical, you know, like field um, when you're going through trying to get a diagnosis, trying to get a doctor to listen to you. Uh, you need them to get that access to your needs. And when you're consistently um, gaslit or um, just can't get that access, it can do kind of the same thing where you just start to feel very um, constantly like you're fighting for your own life, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I was just talking to Andy about this recently about how, you know, now I'm on my diagnostic journey, my doctors tend to believe me and listen to me and take me seriously. But that took me getting way worse to the point where it was readily visible. And it took, you know, over a decade of going through intense diagnostics of trying to find an answer. And for yeah. for 90% of that time, I was not taken seriously. I was not believed. And I was dismissed constantly. I was told, you know, that that it wasn't real, that it was all in my head, that I was making it up. Yep. Told that I just needed to talk to a psychotherapist to convince me to stop experiencing chronic pain. And, you know, I I don't trust my own body anymore. Like, I, I, I don't know if I'm, you know, making it up. Like, I, I used to have complete certainty that it was real, and now I question myself constantly. And until I get a diagnosis, that has been burned into me by, by the medical establishment. Even though doctors take me seriously now, and, like, I have every reason to believe it is real, I, I still am constantly going into this panic mode of, like, what if I'm doing this to myself? Because that's what doctors have told me so much. And that... I, I don't I I don't even know how to wrestle with that because I'm still fighting to find a diagnosis. <laughs> There's uh, too many things to battle with all at once. Yeah, exactly, yourself yeah. and everything external to yourself. Yeah, that was a a lot of the same experience that I had. You know, growing up um, being autistic and not knowing it, not having that diagnosis, I knew that I experienced things differently than other people. Um, and over time, that developed into anxiety and depression. And I knew I experienced that differently than other people, too. You know, it wasn't a phase. It wasn't just a teenage hormones. But my whole life, everybody would just tell me, like, it's okay. Everybody has periods of time like this. Or like, oh, everybody feels that way sometimes. And I, you know, at first, for years and years and years, I was like, no, I'm. this is different. You know, like, <laughs> I'm watching everyone else. Like, like, this is totally different. And so, people would keep saying it. And then I'd say, like, well... If it's the exact same, why can everybody else handle it? And I'm in crisis mode constantly. Like, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been in crisis mode mentally. And people would just say, you know, everybody just deals with this. And so eventually you start thinking like, I don't know, maybe everybody does deal with this. And I'm just weak or I'm making too big of a deal. Everyone feels like they, you know, don't want to see tomorrow, you know, over and over and over again. Um, But yeah, it takes a lot. Logically now I know, just like you, logically I know that I experience world the way I do. I have finally figured that out. And, but nervous system wise, I still have trouble with that. I still gaslight myself at this point um, yeah. because of the experiences. Well, yeah. well said. Yeah. I do the same. Yeah. Because doctors, uh, when, when so many doctors tell me, it's yeah. like, you really need to consider the fact that you're doing this to yourself. 
I finally yeah. did. And then because there's no way to prove that, <laughs> I can't, I can't, without yeah, a diagnosis, I can't let it go, you know? Uh, yeah. And I, I remember before doctors were telling me that, I just had thousand percent certainty. It's like something is wrong. We need to find the answer. I remember when I first started my diagnostic journey in my early 20s, uh, when my, when I had a really bad flare up, I was like, we, we, like something is wrong. We need to find an answer. And if a doctor would dismiss me, I'm like, okay, well, this doctor is no good. You know, he obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. But then, like, when like half a dozen or a dozen doctors tell you, you know, like, there's nothing here, there's nothing to find, then it's like, like, how, how do you how do you integrate that? You know, you you yeah. can't because what's ha I think for me personally, what I really think is happening is that those doctors were not willing to look. You know, like we've actually found test results wrong now. I'm like you know, we're recording this the day before my liver biopsy is happening. So like, we're finally making some progress, hopefully. But, but even so, like, until I get that diagnosis, I just can't get it out of my head. This, this thing of like, you know, how do I know what's actually helping? How do I know what's real? Because so many doctors have told me, you know, to disbelieve myself. It's, it's infuriating. Yeah, yeah. It's hard too, because, you know, being a person of science, <laughs> um, you know, I'm like, on one hand, I'm always like, you have to believe the scientists, you have to believe the experts, you know, especially with like the whole COVID thing, as we're dealing with a lot of opinions on either side um, about what's real and what's not. Um, and it's really hard, like just mentally to integrate the concept of like me believing in quote unquote science, which I know is a broad term. Um, and then also disbelieving pretty much every doctor I've ever had, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, I want, I want to believe them, but my own experience is that a lot of them, you know, I think a lot of them are just acting far outside their area of expertise. Um, you know, they're generalists. Most doctors you end up seeing are generalists. They aren't specialists. They don't know everything anyway. Um, and a lot of times I think they try to give you concrete answers or disprove what you think is going on um, as an expert on something they're not an expert on. Yeah. And so I think that's what I experienced a lot of. Like you couldn't even get past like a, the generalist to get to anyone who might know anything specific because they'll block you. You know, yeah. they'll just put you off in the beginning. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Or or then you'll see a specialist sometimes and they'll just make <laughs> broad generalizations about your life and your health without yeah. running any tests. Yeah. And, you know, I remember the first time I saw, uh, I went to the headache clinic and saw a neurologist who diagnosed me with fibromyalgia yeah. after, you know, a clinical evaluation. And that was like, at the time, it's like, this is just like life shattering, life altering news, but she didn't run any tests. And yeah. like years later, that diagnosis came into question and was eventually kind of thrown out because my my situation progressed in a way that fibromyalgia shouldn't. Uh, yeah. And I keep thinking back to that doctor who's like certain, you know, just told me with certainty that I had fibromyalgia or with yeah. as much certainty as, as you can in that situation. Yeah. Um, and I just think about all the people out there who are misdiagnosed constantly or gaslit constantly by doctors where it is a scientific field. Yeah. And and yeah, you're right. Like that is that is really upsetting. And I I don't want to put the put the idea out there in the world to like never trust a doctor because that's <laughs> exactly. not right. But it's like you should you shouldn't trust a doctor at face value. You should not have blind faith in your yeah. doctor. Like that's why second opinions exist. Like you should be able to find what a doctor is telling you in your own research on the internet, you know? Like you should yeah. be able to 
uh, other doctors should know the same information. Like that's why it's a science is that it's like replicable. You know, you can do the same thing over and over and get similar results. And that's why it's a science. Um, Whereas like some doctors will have told me things that were just like crazy, you know, just like nonsense. Um, Or or you get it, go to five and they give you five different answers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's nothing repeatable here. You know, if I heard the same answer from five different doctors, that would be different. But I, you know, psychiatrist after psychiatrist or doctor after doctor, it's a different answer every time. Right. And I'm just like, all right, well, clearly, like, maybe one of you is right. But I, how would I know which one? Because, you know, then you become you become the science experiment. And yeah. you're running your own experiment of like, how many doctors can I talk to yeah. until I get the same answer more than once? And it's exhausting because yeah. every time that you're given something that doesn't feel right, you know, especially for me, like I'm not confrontational. So going at all and asking for this and then like having to push back is hard. So after how many years do you finally just go, this isn't the avenue I'm going to get my answers in? You right. know, I think a lot of people give up before they ever get an answer. Not only is it monetarily expensive, but like emotionally it's exhausting to to keep doing yeah. that when you're not getting anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I I've talked about this many times on the show, but you know, I switched hospitals entirely because I gave up at one hospital. I went to a naturopath for years and then I gave up on that. And then I started over at the University of Washington and I'm finally making progress. So, you know, there if you're not making any progress somewhere, try somewhere else. If your doctor isn't listening to you, try someone else. There are so many options out there and someone eventually will listen and will hear you. It just, it might take like way longer than it should. And it's, it's horrible. It's awful that that's the way that it works, but that is the way that it works. You know, that as people from the inside have been living in it for years, we can tell you that that's what happens. Yeah. And I think the best thing too, sometimes is just to connect with other people who have similar experiences. Now, you know, with social media being what it is, it gets easier and easier, but just reaching out, trying to join groups or finding individuals who've been through that experience because they might, they might have done 10 years of work to find the one person who knew what they were talking about. And that might cut you out 10 years of trying to do the same thing. You know, right. you might just know who to go to. Um, I, I remember the, the best experience I had medically. It was before I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't want to just take medication because no one ever seemed certain. Um, I went to, in San Diego, there's a Scripps uh, clinic had uh, an integrative medicine, whole department of, of MDs and DOs, but that also specialized in basically the fringes. Not what does what would it be for the general population, but that 1% or mm. that half a percent, what could be wrong um, in understanding all the possibilities, not just, again, like the population diagnoses. And that was a place I felt the most respected. I mean, they gave me a whole packet. Not only was I completely in control of what I wanted to try, you know, it was, we can send you to the nutritionist, a chiropractor, an acupuncturist. We can do saline injections for your pain. We can do, you know, biofeedback. Here's all the options that we can do. Which ones do you want to try? Which ones sound the best to you? Um, I remember even just like the nurse taking my blood pressure, she asked if she could touch me, like just the consent and the autonomy of being in that building. I have never experienced a doctor experience that was like that. And it's a shame, like that was through Scripps, which is like a managed HMO program. So you have to have Scripps to go there. But I'm like, why doesn't, why isn't that readily available like to everyone to have a doctor that's willing to look at the things that no other doctor can kind of explain yet. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, Cause I mean, I heard this over and over. It's like, well, there, you know, for, for 90% of people, this is what's true. There are these like rare cases, but you don't have that. 
I heard yeah. that over and over and over. And it's like, people have that. That's why, yeah. that's why you know that. You that's just why told me that. Yeah, you know? that's why you told me that. It's because people have that. So can we check for that, please? <laughs> and the yeah. answer is almost always no. You know, and it's it's not until you can find like something. You have to have something to go on. But yeah. as lay people, like, how are we supposed to find that something? You know, like we and need our doctors to find the something. We need our doctors to run tests to find yeah. the thing that will lead to the to the specialist to find the diagnosis. And, yeah. you know, I, I, it's just absolutely maddening that doctors aren't even willing to do that step because they aren't willing to acknowledge that rare things exist and that people might have them. And a lot yeah, of those rare things are not as rare as people think, you know? <laughs> that is rare. No, they're, it's because everybody who has it's getting turned away yeah. at saying only 1% yeah, exactly. has it. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing, you know, with, with the autistic diagnosis, like the reason that so many um, like assigned female at birth like aren't ever diagnosed with being autistic is because traditionally it was thought that like, it's only a male's disease, you know, only, mm. only little boys get it. Um, and so pretty much if you were, if you were, you know, female presenting, it was just automatically like, Oh, well, you're not autistic because there's very few autistic women, you know, but I'm like, but there are some, and now, you know, you're finding out or finding out that like, there's a lot, they just wouldn't diagnose us, wow. you know, because their criteria was geared towards uh, eliminating us intentionally, you know? Yeah, when you look at the history of medical research, a lot of it was done on white men. And a lot of things were not discovered that should have been and still haven't been. And that's, I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole we could go down that's like extremely maddening as well. That, you know, when when research studies are done, you need to study the population as a whole. You can't just study one group and say that this is true of all people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, yeah definitely frustrating. Yeah. But okay, this is amazing stuff. And I'm obviously very passionate about this topic. <laughs> um, but I want to dive into your story a little bit. So before we yeah. do that, because we've never covered autism on the show before, it's something that I am, you know, like a little familiar with, but I don't really understand super well. I would love to hear from you. What is autism? Yeah. So it's, it's something that's always really difficult. I think in a lot of the Facebook groups I'm in, we have whole threads that are like, how would you describe it? Uh, because it's, it's hard to describe it when you don't know what the alternative is. I don't know what it's like to be non-autistic. Yeah. Um, but the best that I can do is it's, it's a neurological condition or a type of neurology, really, not so much even a condition. It's a different way that our brains are wired to, to run. That means that the way that we process information, whether that's uh, interpersonally, um, speech, sensory input is processed differently than it would be for a non-autistic person. Um, so, you know, the DSM criteria is not that great and it's very broad and it's very subjective. Um, pretty much it looks at, you know, if you have some type of social communication impairment, which that's very vague, and that can be anything from you take things too literally to uh, you don't like to look people in the eye. Basically, very deficit-based language about how we just don't communicate or understand communication the exact same way that the general population does. Mm. Um, And then the other one is often uh, looking at like repetitive behavior, which can be like the stimming, you know, like doing things to gain sensory input, whether that's, you know, playing with your hair or it's flapping or rocking things that people would uh, traditionally think of. Um, Or it can also be just that like engaging in, um, 
what people call special interests or just, you know, intense interests, becoming really hyper-focused on something specific, um, which, you know, they look for things like trains or license plates or something random uh, because that's more likely what, you know, a little boy might be interested in, but it can be anything that you're interested in just being very uh, specific on, on looking into that. So there's just all sorts of little things um, that kind of go into it, but um in terms of like what it's like to experience that, I think, you know, almost everyone that I've heard, uh, even if they weren't diagnosed young, has at some point felt like everybody else around them is an alien or they were an alien. That's a common way that people have felt or that everybody else got like a manual for how to interact with people and how to do life. And like, I didn't get it, you know, <laughs> like everyone else has these scripts they know how to use. They know what they're supposed to do in situations. And um, no one gave that to me when I was born, you know? Um, so yeah, it's it just kind of feeling a lot of the times, like you're just not on the same plane as a lot of the people that you're interacting with. Um, you, you can't quite, you know, you you're there and you, even if you're trying to socialize, you just can't quite get it right. Hmm. Um, no matter how hard you try. So and, you know, again, that's what it's like to, to feel it. But I do study and teach on topics of autism as well. And like what's going on mentally a lot of times is that um, autistic brains don't generalize uh, the same way that non-autistic brains do. Um, so we tend to hold on to all the information and data points we've ever gotten and manually kind of sift through them every time. Whereas non-autistic brains create really fast highways in their neurology. So they just get rid of information that doesn't seem that important and they go with what seems the most relevant. And we have to sort through that every time, which is why you get things like we may have a delay before we speak, our processing time seems slower, but it's also why you get increased innovation or um, what people, you know, like abilities that look savant-like um, or pattern recognition, because we're just storing and have access to all of the information we've ever taken in. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it, it's a double-edged sword. We're slower at processing. Communication can get harder because every situation is very specific for us. So, you know, I know how to interact with my best friend on a Tuesday morning when we're taking the hike we always take. But if you take me and, and now we're doing a hike Tuesday afternoon, same exact situation, one thing's different. I suddenly don't know how to interact in that situation because I've not been in it. The exact situation. Um, so it's things like that, you know, that just when you add them up can be very draining if you're expected to process and behave exactly like everybody else. Yeah. That's so interesting to think about because you know, th for the autistic population and the non-autistic population, bridging the gap of understanding is very difficult because it is, you know, it's just your life. It's how yes. you experience the world. Um, you know, we had a guest recently, Andrew, talk about the, like, it's the water I'm swimming in, you know? Yeah. And how do you know what pool someone else is in? Like, you're, we're both in the same, it looks like we're both in the same swimming pool, but we're actually in two different dimensions. Yes. <laughs> and, you know communicating back and forth like because we all kind of assume that the way that we experience the world is how everyone else experiences the world uh, learning to understand that that's not true and then learning what the differences are and trying to understand and have some empathy for for what other people are experiencing the way that they think and experience is really difficult you know it's really yeah. really difficult to bridge that gap so this is exciting I, you know I'm, I'm really grateful that you're 
willing to present this to us today. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's difficult, you know, for certain things like, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't always have fibromyalgia. I didn't always have depression though. I did start very young at that. You know, there are certain things that I know what it's like to not have that. So I can describe better what the difference is, but I was born autistic. So, and it literally is the lens through which I understand myself and the whole world. There's nothing that I do or think or say that's not autistic. Like it is my processing system. It's just a different operating system. And so it's really difficult to try to describe to someone, um, like what my processing system is when that's just my, it's my whole processing system and they just have a different one. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm running on windows and you're on Linux. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's a, that's a common way that actually it is described, you know? And so it's like, I don't, you know, and some people are like, what is it? And I'm just like, it's everything that I experience about the world is just different. It's not, you know, I'm still a human, but it's just different enough that I, I can be in the same situation with someone else. And we have just, processed it differently you know and uh, there's a lot of people that process the way you do you know so it's yeah it's like these are just two ways that brains develop and we've done a lot of research and we we know a bit about these differences to enough to recognize that there's like categories you know there's this spectrum of autism it's not just one thing um so it's like we can recognize it but still like that communication back and forth is still hard there's differences too, you know, like you said, it is a spectrum, which a lot of people tend to think of as a continuum, like I'm either less or more autistic, which isn't, you know, the case. It's a spectrum in that there's a lot of different ways that that different neurology can present in terms of traits, right? Like some people are um, hyposensitive to sensory input, some are hypersensitive, some are, well, many are like me, which is like, it depends. I could be you know, I could dive into wanting to go to a concert that's super loud, or I can have a hard time because someone is speaking quietly in the room with me, you know, like I can go either way. There, some of us um, have an easier time with verbal communication. Some have a harder time with it. Um, Again, that depends as well. Like I uh, was hyperverbal as a child, but depending on the situation, I can be nonverbal. I don't have access to um, using verbal communication. Um, so there's just like, there's just a, a whole different way that the traits can present. And, and that also can be context dependent. Uh, so, you know, I think this, the saying a lot of people say is if you've met one person with autism, you've, you've met with one person with autism, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and even that, like there's, there are, uh, especially the older generation that will use person first language, like person with autism, but the generally the newer generation, especially late diagnosed, have a heavy preference for being called autistic. You know, I'm autistic. I'm not a person with autism, but even that's not consistent, you know, across the board. So I think the best thing to do if you do know anyone that is autistic is just like getting to know them very specifically. Um, and the, the nice thing is almost every autistic person, because they're so context specific, will get to know you very specifically. Mm. So um, I think, you know, autistic people can make like very great friends because they want to get to know their friend and exactly what that friend wants, needs, likes, rather than making generalizations about just like how people, how you should just treat a friend, things like that. So it takes a lot longer to figure that out though, because we don't generalize. So I could meet someone new and I could have zero idea how that person wants me to interact with them. Whereas neurotypical people have like this idea in their head about what generally people like um yeah so yeah a whole different thing well there's a lot of wisdom in in approaching the world that way because when you approach the world with generalities you tend to 
offend people. You know, yeah. you tend to leave people out or you tend to misidentify people and getting to know every person that you know on an individual basis, learning their quirks, their preferences, their pronouns, their, you know, yeah. how they like to be identified is really important. And there is no right way. You know, we're, like, with this whole cancel culture thing on the internet and, you yeah. know, with, with like the social reckoning that we're going through right now, um, you know, the, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, we're just recognizing how generalities have been oppressive. So, yeah. like learning to listen and learning to understand on an individual basis can yield some really positive social results. So, there's a lot to learn from that mindset, I think. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it, it comes up in a lot of different ways, um, depending on, you know, what the person's interest in. My, my personal interest has been behavior, partially probably because of all the interpersonal trauma I have. So that became how I stayed safe was studying people and all their behavioral nuances to, to use my pattern recognition to predict out really far what was going to happen and how to keep myself safe. Mm. That just turned into a general interest, you know? And so for me, that's something where I can... If anything's related to behavior, whether that's consumer trends, business trends, animals, people in my life, I can usually project out really far where that pathway is going far before most people can. Usually before, like if I have a friend, I can usually tell what they feel or what they're going to do before they even know it, which not everyone appreciates. Um <laughs> But, you know, so there's, there's definitely a, a benefit, you know, to, to having a brain, like you said, that can be very specific um, and wants to treat every situation based on the evidence that they're getting from that situation, mm -hmm. rather than kind of just applying uh, a general assumption onto every situation. So yeah. but it also, takes a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, it must just be exhausting. And then yeah. that, that uh, you know, inability to prepare for generalities must be really yeah. difficult. Yeah. I think that's something I tried to describe that. Speaking of Laura, I was trying to describe that to her the other day. It's like, you know, we're talking about actually the difference between social anxiety and um, being autistic because mm. that's often conflated. A really common misdiagnosis for somebody who's autistic is that you have social anxiety, which they can come together, obviously, but they're not the same thing. And, you know, I've experienced both at different periods and I've experienced social anxiety at different periods of my life. Um, and the difference between social anxiety, like social anxiety, a lot of times I'm thinking about all the things that could go wrong and that I can't prepare for them and that I can't, I might not know how to deal with them. And I'm, I'm again, anxious for the outcome. Um, but a lot of the reasons that I have difficulty with social situations is because it's like a, if I don't and haven't done it before, it's not that I'm worried about what's going to happen. It's like a black hole. Mm. There's just uh, you know, a non-autistic brains, from what I understand, fill in some details. If you're saying, you know, you're going to so-and-so's birthday party and it's at, you know, a park, they would have a general idea of what a park is, what a birthday party is, whatever. And a lot of times for my brain, it's just like, it, everything's missing. I've never done that specific situation before and everything is missing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so that is the difficult part. You know, I can't imagine a situation that I've not been in and that's just overwhelming. I don't yeah. know how to like, I don't know how to get ready for the day if I don't know what I'm about to walk into. Um, so I think that's kind of, that's pretty common. I think for people that are autistic, it's just, 
the overwhelming piece of, of not being able to generalize means that we need a lot more information going into situations. We need people to explicitly give descriptive details about situations because we don't generalize or assume things the same way. But yeah, it can be exhausting if we don't have those details. You know, your brain's just like spinning, trying to like figure out what to do without the details. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. stimming. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So um, stimming or uh, is a a term for basically anything that someone does that's like sensory seeking. Usually it's like some type of repetitive um, behavior, but I do think that like now in the autistic community, it can be a lot more broad. Like I might see a visual input, like Lord of the Rings for me is very visually stimming, you know, like um, just something that I, I want to just stare at. And I, it makes me feel better just to like stare at that image. That's so beautiful. But for me, like, since I was a kid, I've rubbed pieces of fabric together through my fingers. Um, so that's been like my constant life stim. I have fabric in my lap right now. That's the right texture to rub <laughs> together. Or, you know, if you've ever held a remote that has like the really soft rubber buttons, I don't know if mm. I, I think like, and just the way that that feels. So, um, stimming or that, that sensory seeking type of behavior is something that's often used, um, to self-soothe and, and everyone does it to some extent, you know, twirling, bouncing your knee, um, you know, twirling your hair. People tend to do it maybe when they're anxious or they have a lot of energy and they can't move. Anything like that it can be an, an outlet. It can be self-soothing. It can be something you do when you're happy. Um, so you have a lot of emotions you want to do something with, with your body. Um, people that are autistic just generally, we are much more sensitive to our environment and to our internal states. So, we do it much more often as a, as a means of like emotional or sensory regulation. Um, yeah. So I think like for me, um, it's, it's definitely something that I do to kind of deal with just like general overwhelm in situations. It gives me like a, a focus point, um, of something to do with my body so that I can like stay present, stay in the situation without kind of getting too overwhelmed with everything else going on around me. Yeah. So is it, is it that you are taking in too much information all the time? So you need some sort of sensory focus? Yeah. And I mean, I think like for everyone, it's a little bit different because it comes up in different ways. If I'm overwhelmed, a lot of times I stim in like maybe a different way. Like I might pinch at my skin or something that is the sensory physical sensory input is more overwhelming maybe. So it's like grounding, you know, um, same thing when people wear like the thunder shirts or you wear like a weighted blanket, like that sensory input of a heavy weight or like, uh, my service dog was trained to do like deep pressure, um, those types of things that sensory input can be very grounding and bring you into your own body. Um, autistic people generally, or a lot of us have problems, um, with kind of just knowing where our body is in space and time. Um, so like, you don't know where your skin ends and where the, the air begins. And that's a very disconcerting feeling. So just having like pressure against you, sometimes that can just make you aware of where the limit of your own body is and your own sensation, wow. which is again, also something that's common with people who are dissociating or have anxiety, you kind of lose that sensation. So again, a lot of the things, I think a, a lot of different people with different neurologies experience, um, it's just much more commonly associated with being autistic, but yeah, it can be, you know, for that, or it can be, sometimes I just have like too much going on mentally. And I think, you know, 
knowing what I know of behavior, I think sometimes when you have a lot going on mentally, your body wants to naturally act on things. It wants to do something with that thought and with that energy. Um, and so, yeah, I think stimming is a way to, to like, let go of some of that um, energy. If you've seen um, the zoomies with dogs, you know, or uh, frenetic um, energy, like you have a buildup of energy and if you see a dog ever like zoom around the room for no <laughs> apparent reason, I think that's, you know, that's very similar. So you have a lot of energy built up and you need to do something with it. So I think that's another way that sometimes people stem for as well. Interesting. So knowing all of this, you know, it seems like knowing that you are autistic is how you kind of learn to develop the tools to manage it. But you went most of your life without knowing you were autistic. So talk me through that journey. So, yeah. And I mean, I would, I'd say like, you know, starting backwards, getting the diagnosis gave me the language to use, you know? Um, So my whole life, I, I was, I spent my whole life trying to explain to people what was going on for me with people being like, oh, everyone feels like that. I'm like, then I'm not explaining this right because it's (laughs) not what everyone feels. So, you know, I, uh, I went through childhood, you know, especially like elementary school. I was quirky. Everyone knew that I was different. Um, in class, I didn't participate for the most part. My teachers would give me a piece of paper or coloring or whatever so that I would just keep myself occupied at a desk. But I, if they ever gave me a quiz or a test, I knew all the information. So I was quiet. I didn't bother anyone. I was unproblematic. And so it was like, well, she's just quirky. Maybe she's bored. Maybe she's too smart. She's not being challenged, but she's not a problem. So we don't need to do anything about it. Mm. You know, ignoring the fact that like I'm at school eight hours a day and not participating, like maybe there should be something done about that. Otherwise, why am I here? Um, I didn't, I had a hard time socially with kids, especially through elementary school. I never really thought anyone was my friend. Kids didn't make sense. They were really illogical. Like they'd be your friend one day and then like the next day they just weren't. There was nothing that happened. So I spent most of my time, you know, talking to my mom, being friends with my mom and my mom's friends and the adults in my life. Um, They were much more predictable for me. And I had much more adult conversations starting from a very young age. Um, I never... I think there was a very short period of time where I had like childlike communication. I went into reasoning communication really young. I'd never got punished because if I ever did anything, my mom would take me aside and she would say like, you know, why did you do that? And I would have a full reason why I did it because I had been overthinking every action. (laughs) I had a reason for it. I miscalculated a lot, um, but I could tell her and she never felt like she could punish me because I could articulate why I had done something and she could just pinpoint the the like leap in logic I made that wasn't accurate and just like tell me and I'd be like okay I'll do it different next time and I would because I didn't want to do anything wrong and I was very logical and so um yeah I went through life feeling very adult in in elementary school but had a hard time because I had a hard time in class um I'd get bored or overstimulated but I didn't know what was going on so I spent years going to the the nurse's office every day, you know, at some point in the day. And she would just let me sit in there for however long I wanted. I would, when I was ready to go back to class, she'd give me a sticker and send me back to class, you know? Um, So I was lucky to have that flexibility. Um, So even though I didn't have a diagnosis, I had a lot of flexibility in elementary school and I was getting my social needs met because I had the adults in my life and I have a, my dad's Afghan. I have a huge Afghan family on one side. I was very close to my mom's family on the other side. So I had a lot of social input. 
um, it wasn't really until middle school that I started to want to have peer relationships, you know, and I didn't know how to do that. So I, I, I struggled a lot. I had really inappropriate conversations, like they were either over-sexual or for like four years from 12 to 16, I created a complete fantasy life outside of school and would tell people about it every day. Like now looking <laughs> back, I'm like, <laughs> they were definitely not realistic. But what was I, the gist know, of I, that fantasy world? Oh, I made a whole group of friends that didn't exist. And like every night I would just go out and hang out with them. And there was lots of drama. I think I made like email accounts. Like I got really involved in this like fantasy, but that's because I wanted so desperately to connect and to socialize. But all I knew about people was what I saw in the books I read. I was an avid reader and that was all I knew of humanity. So I just assumed life was really interesting for most people. (laughs) And I didn't know what to talk about other than drama and like a story unfolding. And so I made one, I made at night and I would think about the story, like what happened to me today in my story. And then the next day at school, I would tell people about what happened. Um, And that's actually not uncommon. You know, I now I can't lie. Like it just, my brain, it does not compute. It's very difficult. I just like, I only like say the truth, which can be not good. Sometimes uh, my therapists have told me I'm too honest sometimes <laughs> when I don't need to be, but as a kid, you know, it is kind of common when autistic people are trying to, and in childhood, trying to make friends that they make up stories because they don't know what to say in a conversation. Um, they don't have anything to say and they want to say something. Yeah. So, you know, that was difficult. And then when I was in high school is when like the really heavy depression set in, like almost immediately I I came out um, as being bi when I was 14, 13, going into 14. So once ninth grade started at 14, there was that to deal with. There was still really wanting to socially connect and still not really knowing how. Um, And then it, that's also when the teachers started to get more restrictive. They started to remove that flexibility in high school. Um, high school feels just much more jail-like than, than middle school, elementary school, where teachers were a little more nurturing and understanding. Suddenly, like needing to go to the bathroom 20 times in the middle of a class because I was overwhelmed, but I didn't know why I needed to go. I just needed to not be in that room. Uh, I wasn't allowed to. You get two bathroom passes the whole semester, you know? And so there was just now all of these these barriers to being able to mo- like modify my own environment so I would stay comfortable. So I ended up leaving high school at 15 mm. um, and started doing community college. I tested out, just did community college where I had more flexibility in my day. Um, but yeah, I think like, you know, all throughout that period, the depression was growing and that was the time period people were like, everyone's depressed. You're a teenager. You'll grow out of it. It gets better. Um, but you know, like 20 years later, I've never been less, I've never been less depressed. You know, it's been 20 years of severe depression. Um, but I was just, I was always seen as somebody who could get anything that I wanted done. If I wanted to do something, I figured out exactly how it needed to be done. I knew how to persuade or what to do to get that thing you know, testing out of high school or getting into a internship or getting a job. I always got the things that I really wanted because I could study and I knew exactly how to, what to say, like how to get that specific experience. But once I was in it, I didn't know how to maintain that. You know, it's exhausting to um, 
but constantly be putting together the pieces and, and, and juggling the variables and figuring out how to interact in every situation. And you can't maintain that level of masking <laughs> for a year or two years in a job, but you can do it for a job interview, you know? Yeah. And so I was really effective at getting into things and getting things I wanted and making a friend or getting people to like me. Um, but I couldn't maintain that mm-hmm. over the long term. And so I just had a, a really repetitive experience of being in jobs or having friends that at first really liked me and thought I was like perfect or really neat or really engaging or a great employee. And then there would always be issues, you know, whether it was they thought I was stubborn because I asked a lot of questions. If I don't understand something, I can't do anything. Um, so I would constantly question you know, my bosses on how to do things and literally just ask questions. I wasn't meaning to be challenging, but it came off as challenging. Um, and friends would find, say that I was very arrogant or as judgmental, which is the exact opposite of what's happening in my head, but I have a flat affect and I'm very direct when I speak. And so there was just so many things that were going on where I just kept feeling like I was failing over and over. And for a long time, I maintained hope. Like I was like, oh, it's just these situations. I just need to find a better situation. Um, but a lot of things happen. I was developing, a, I developed agoraphobia and panic disorder at one point trying to kind of like, I didn't know how to figure out how to work, you know, social interactions. And so I ended up with like, uh, with having like tons of anxiety and then I fixed that. And then it was always something I was always like pushing really hard. And I ended up spending almost a decade from like 20 to 30 creating like really rigid rules for myself so that I wouldn't, I could feel that my functioning was slipping. Like my, I was having a hard time keeping up friends, having a hard time going to work. I was crying more often. I was struggling in so many ways and I didn't want to let that go. I didn't want to fail. And so I would say, you can never take a day off of work. So like I went to work, you know, like one eye wasn't working one day because I had gotten scratched in the eye by my dog and like it wouldn't open. It was like running, but I had told myself, you have to go to work every day. You don't get an excuse. Mm. Um, and so I was like sent home from work a lot at one point um, because I was going in sick all the time. <laughs> um, but I created this, these rules I would not break. And that was how I forced myself through the suffering. You mm. know, I was not doing well. I wasn't coping, but everyone around me would say everyone experiences this. And so I thought, well, if everyone else is doing it, that I just must need to just make myself do it. Um, And so, you know, I went to tons of different therapists off and on, took different medications, and no one ever got to the root of anything. You know, it was always different diagnosis. It was like, you're depressed, which yes, die, like didn't need to go to a doctor to tell me that. But, you know, it'd be like, you're bipolar, or you have borderline, or you just struggle with change or whatever. And every time they would give me a diagnosis, they would say, I'm giving you this diagnosis, but you don't quite fit it. Or this is the closest thing I can think of. Hmm. And so it was never, and it never fixed anything, right? If you get a diagnosis, even a psychiatric one, there's a treatment plan for it to some extent, you know? Um, But because it was never quite the right diagnosis, there was no, no one could ever help me other than giving me someone to talk to. Um, And so, you know, finally after leaving a number of jobs and skipping around different friendships uh, right before when I was 30, I just hit a wall. Like I, I woke up one day and I couldn't go back to work. Like 
I went into the doctor to try to get on like the short-term disability insurance. Um, and they, of course, they are like, no, like not for anything mental. And I was so panicked because like, I can't afford to live without having some sort of income. But I cannot go to work. Um, and I remember sitting in the doctor's office crying and I'm not usually very emotional in front of people. So it was a big deal that I was like crying in front of someone. And I asked her, like, if I broke my hand, would you sign this paper? And she said, well, yeah, you know, cause you broke your hand. And I think I said to her, okay, I'll come back with a broken hand. And I fully meant it. Like I can't work. Yeah. And I remember like thinking like, that's how severe it had gotten that I was willing to go cause myself like harm that I didn't want to because I just needed help and no one would help me. Yeah. Um, and so she ended up signing the paper for a month and then I had to figure <laughs> something I didn't break my hand, but um, like, it was just so distressing and I didn't know what was going on because I'd always, I'd hit points. Like, you know, I felt like I couldn't go on and I forced myself through it. I had forced myself through it for 30 years. And I was at this point where I couldn't, force it. it. I was trying and it wouldn't happen. And um, yeah, so that was like four or five years ago. And that process is what led me to figuring out on my own that I was autistic. And it happened to be from a YouTube video. I just ran across randomly YouTube recommended because I've been watching. I love psychology. So I've been watching lots of different things. People have DID and people who are, you know, borderline and just interesting. And it, it showed me this video of a girl who found out she was autistic in college and she was describing her experience. And I thought like, oh my God, like that's exactly my life experience. And she got this diagnosis. And so I read a bunch of memoirs and watched YouTube videos and, and just was looking up every personal account for adult women who had gotten diagnosed late in life. And it was like, oh, you know, we're different people, but it was a lot of the same themes, you know, the same things they struggled with. The fact that people thought that they were highly productive, highly independent, very intelligent, and yet they could never meet their potential, right? Like they kept failing at these things everyone else has no problem with. Hmm. And um, that's when I, like, I looked for a therapist who specialized in, you know, autism, went to her, she was like, yeah, like, I think you should go for a, a diagnosis. It's very difficult to find anyone who will diagnose an adult, right? Because they specialize in diagnosing children, not adults. And I went to a place that diagnoses children. And I, I happened to get them to, to give me, um, go through the diagnostic process process. And I got my diagnosis at that point, but you know, it was, I know there's also other women that are self-diagnosed autistic that have gone to the same people and haven't because they've been told things like, well, you are married, so you can't be autistic or you can make eye contact. So you can't be autistic. And I bet. So that discounting the amount of pressure we've, all, we've put ourselves through training ourselves to try to look on the outside a certain way so that we can blend in when internally the amount of effort it takes to look that way on the outside um, leads like a lot of us to our death, you know, aut autistic, especially those that don't have an intellectual disability, those that would be considered, not that I like the term, but high functioning, those that, you know, are heavier on the masking, they hide it as much as they can better, um, are 300% more likely to commit suicide than the general population, you know, three wow. times more likely. But that's because that that's not sustainable, you know, constantly trying to navigate every situation by hiding as much of yourself as you can is, 
like exhausting and and especially being told everyone does it you know you're just like well i don't know how so you know there's no help if this is how it's like for everyone obviously i'm not maybe i'm just something's wrong with me that i can't handle it um so yeah unfortunately and who knows that statistic might be even higher because imagine the people that never even got diagnosed so they're not part of that statistic yeah um so yeah, that's that's kind of my journey, but it's not an uncommon one. You know, there's a lot of women that are diagnosed at even later, 50, 60, 70. Um, I can't even imagine, you know, going 70 years thinking you can't make life work and struggling so hard, having no answers, being gaslit, it causing problems like fibromyalgia eventually or depression or anxiety. And um, then finding, I mean, thankfully you find at some point, but then finding out, you know, like, wow, like my life would have been so different if I had found this out, not at 70 or not at 30. Yeah. There's no reason for us to be all put in boxes that we don't fit in. You know, if you think of your body as like a machine Mm -hmm. that is, you know, machines are like humming and whirring and vibrating and um, all the different pieces moving together. You know, if you think about a, a machine that is like, all it's all vibrating in harmony that machine is going to run really well um and if you force that machine to do something that it can't do you know it's like its machinery isn't built to to turn right it only turns left and then you constantly make it turn right it will break down eventually you know this is a weird example but yeah but but (laughs) i get really weird metaphors all the time i was thinking you know it's like it's a lot like the ugly duckling story right like you know that that little goose or whatever living with the the ducks you know thinking like i'm wrong I'm, i don't look right i don't be, like behave right i don't remember the whole story i can't remember what kind of bird the ugly duckling was but you know he's ugly no one likes him he's less than he doesn't fit in and then you know come to find out he becomes an adult and or she i or it i don't know um and you know it's like just a different animal it's not does it's not a duck and so I think that's a lot of what happens. That's what happens to um, a lot of autistic people, whether they're diagnosed or not. It's like if we're comparing ourselves to neurotypicals existing in a world created for neurotypical people or you know non-autistic people, then we're always going to feel like we're wrong. But if we don't hold ourselves to the expectation of being something that we're not, and we can just see the benefits of what we are, do you know, do I process quickly? No, but do I process very thoroughly? Yeah. And there's, there's a, there's a beauty to processing really thoroughly or to seeing things from a different perspective or being really specific. Um, But if I'm constantly trying to make myself think fast or generalize or stare at people in the eyes while they talk or whatever, I'm going to feel like I'm failing. And the idea of constantly trying to be something that you're not, and you'll never get there, but you'll try, you're always going to feel like a failure and you're still never going to succeed, you know? So it's just, it's an impossible standard to, to try yeah. to hold yourself to. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I feel like our society is sort of moving in this direction where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of different ideas yeah. in their heads with a lot of different, you know, like, processing going on in their heads like why why can't we just let people be themselves you know like why do we have to force people to be societally acceptable or to fit into these molds why can't we just let humanity flourish you know and blossom and grow in the directions that that it wants to instead of trying to confine it to this one specific thing and i feel like that's happening now you know it's 
it, there's definitely like some pushback against it happening, but I feel like there's been this movement recently towards um, accepting individual individuality as it presents and encouraging people to find themselves, um, which, you know, conversely, for a lot of people, that's horrifying. You know, for a lot of people, they're like, please just tell me what box to be in so I can be in a box. But yeah. I'm not one of those people. That's that's my worst nightmare, you know? So, um, but both can exist. Like, we can have both. It's just like learning to identify who people are and allowing people to identify themselves and believe them when they tell you. You know, I there's there's so much, there's something really exciting about that to me. Like, there's a future of humanity written inside of that that really excites me you know as a sci-fi nerd as a star trek nerd this (laughs) idea that like we can learn to understand our differences and celebrate them and flourish because of it like i think that that's a real possibility and it's really exciting Um, but i'm thinking about your story when you think back through that whole journey that you went through to someone who understands autism if you were, if they were your teacher, they would have been like, oh, this, this kid's autistic, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, that, looking should, back, that could have happened at so many places along this journey. When you yeah, look back, no are you upset about it? it? You know, I think about this a lot. I'm not a person that has a lot of regrets um, in general, because I'm just like, life happened the way it happened. And, you know, who knows where I would be if anything had happened different. I think it's really easy to say, I wish this would have happened. I don't know what the direction would have been because I I can't see this alternative future. You know, one of the, the downsides is that the most common therapy that's used for autistic children is um, applied behavior analysis, which is ABA. And I studied the use of it in animals. So I have a pretty good understanding of it as like a practitioner's lens. But one of the issues is that whereas I just looked for what in the environment worked and didn't work and molded myself to that, I basically self ABA'd um, the process of the therapy. A lot of times it, it looks at what it thinks that child developmental process should look like. When should they speak? How should they speak? How should they communicate? How should they behave? Um, and then basically, even the good kind using like positive reinforcement, shape the children into looking more neurotypical. Mm. And, you know, there can be lesser extents, I think, like, m- maybe possibly the best extent would be if that the, the child is interacting in like super self interest behavior, then then sure, maybe that's, that's something that can happen. But I think, you know, it, it robs kids of their autonomy. And I, you know, um, in a way that, well, let's be honest, that's kind of in America, what we do to kids a lot of the time anyway, we don't view kids as people, we view them as like property um, to kind of mold and shape in our image. Um, But yeah, so I think like, you know, if I had got diagnosed young, is that what would have happened? And would that be any better? Because I think it's something like 60 to 70 or something like that percent of kids that went through um, ABA also come out with CPTSD from that therapy. So You know, I think, you know, at that point, I don't know that it would have been any better. Um, I would have liked, I'm like, if I could interject at any point, I might like to have known in high school, you know, (laughs) like when I was really starting to realize I was different and everyone was telling me I wasn't, I would have liked someone to have said, you are actually. And then at that point, I had enough personal autonomy and ability for autonomy that I could have made my own decisions. Uh, prior to that, I would have been at the whim of whatever my parents decided that they wanted for me, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know what that would have been. And and I, I was lucky in that I was given a lot of flexibility as a kid. No one told my parents, you know, to make me anything that I wasn't. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really difficult to say. I think now, like now that I know that there are other therapies that exist, 
Um, like if I had a kid and that kid, I was like, oh, you're autistic. I would, yeah, I would want them to know immediately. But I also know that I wouldn't try to change that about them. Yeah. I don't think that being autistic is a bad thing. I don't think autistic behaviors are a bad thing or processing is a bad thing. It's just a different way of thinking. And it needs to be accommodated a little bit differently because society is not set up for that. You yeah. know, and so you have to you have to help create a situation in which that can thrive. You know, that's what really, you know, I think we want for every person and every kid is like, how do we help every person thrive? And everybody needs something different. And Absolutely. if you fall on the fringes in any way, you know, whether that's about being in a marginalized identity or, um, you know, low socioeconomic status or you have a disability, like you're on the fringes of what society is built for. Um and so I think like, we just need to find a way where society can work, you know, for ev- the benefit of everybody. Yeah. Um, that's the goal. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, I think that's, that's the goal. And like you said, I think that um, I'm re- very excited about Gen Z. Um, you know, I was a little like, you know, punk rock kid at every protest and pushing, but I was, there weren't as many of me. And now Gen Z has a higher percentage of you know, people that are willing to push back against social norms, to question things, to not tolerate disrespect just for the sake of it, things like that. And so, you know, being that my, now my master's and my, my focus is on business in the business world and the psychology behind it. I'm very excited to see what that does to the, the workforce in general. Yeah. Oh, um, interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that's what, you know, I think a lot of what needs to change is I think a lot of, you know, we are capitalistic. And so, our entire upbringings are pretty much geared around what we're going to do as a career and how productive we are into the economics of society. And I think that's a lot of the reason that we don't let people be who they are because we're trying to make good little worker bees, you know? Um, But there's definitely a way for people to be productive and participate in society that isn't cookie cutter, you know? And I think- Well, people are much more productive if they're happy. You know, like that's the piece that's always been missing. It's like, what about happiness? What about joy, self-care? What about being healthy? Like, why can't we build that into our workforce? And that's starting to change as well. Like, that's another thing that COVID has kind of um, blown open is like, people are realizing that, you know- uh, we're, we're talking about working four days a week now. You know, people yeah. are realizing that it's it's not okay to give your entire life to your job and to ignore your family and to have this time where you're forced to be home and to be with your family and to be like, I love my family. Why can't yeah. I see my family? You know, this is this is this is wrong. Like this whole society is kind of built backwards. Um, you know, and I, you know, I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying that literally. I'm just, you know. I, there's there's a lot about our society that I absolutely love, but there are there are some things about it that just fundamentally rub me the wrong way. And as someone with a chronic illness, I was working four days a week before I hit my wall and couldn't go to work anymore. And yeah. it was awesome. It was awesome. I had three days a week to pursue my my creative uh, endeavors, like playing in bands and making podcasts. And I was happy. You know, I I enjoyed my work. I was more productive because I was well rested and because I was getting my my, you know, relationships and my creativity, creativity and my joy all taken care of. That makes for, you know, a happier person. And we all want to be happy. Like what I feel like happiness should be the goal, you know? <laughs> Why aren't we building a society for happy people? Like yeah. that that should be the goal. And accepting each other for our differences and accommodating for differences, accommodating for disabilities, uh, allowing people to live full happy uh lives. Like, why is that bad? Why is that bad? Why are people fighting against that? It blows my mind. 
I think, you know, too, like just looking at work trends and obviously I don't have like data to back this up or a research study. This is just my own observation. But, you know, it's just I think over time we've watched the wealth disparity grow. Right. And so people are getting greedier and greedier and want more and more of the economic output from any sort of productivity. You know, the people at the top want more and more money. And and a lot of our society has changed to accommodate that. You know, if you look in the people always want to look back at the 50s, you know, about like how great things were and whatever. But it's like the vast majority, not everyone, obviously, we're not looking at people of color, even to say people at that point, but the vast majority of people that were working um, were, you know, one person working and people were not working as hard. The amount of time they spent actually working and actually focused was much less. There was a lot of uh, socializing at work. And then you still had money to take your, you know, family of four on a trip every year and you had vacation time and you had a pension. Every company had a pension. You stayed at the same company for forever. They had an um, incentive to keep you there forever. They like understood that. And over Mm -hmm. time, I think what just happened is we've seen, you know, especially with technology increasing as it's just about getting goods out there as fast as possible, having as many people. And if we just blow through workers over and over again for what we consider unskilled labor in factories or shipping companies or whatever, people are very short-sighted, I think, and don't see that that's an issue in the long run, right? Yeah. But um, at some point, they're going to have to because no one's going to continue working like that. So, you know, like well, we can't. you put up yeah. with it for a while and then it's like, it's not sustainable. Yeah. People are burning out. People are turning to, you know, uh, unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. And it's just, it's not sustainable as a society. Um, and it causes, you know, it can cause, is this what kind of caused your complex uh, post-traumatic stress disorder? This whole idea of forcing yourself to live in a way that wasn't working for your body past the point of what was safe? Yeah. So I think like, you know, some of it starts like in childhood, just from, you know, being in situations that you're, you're not getting your emotional needs met or your, your feeling of safety met. And then like, for me, it just keeps going. I think a lot of what it is, is more so that like, I knew that I was struggling with things and I couldn't get that help. I was being told that I wasn't struggling as much as I was. So is that, that's happening, you know, a lot over and over and over again. And then the other thing for me is interpersonally, it's just, I, you know, autistic people don't have any less of a desire to have social connection and community. And there's, you know, I think there's like a misconception that we're not social. We don't want to be, um, but that's not true. And I have a very high like relationships are everything to me. Like, I think the meaning of, I was born with the lesson that a lot of people have to learn over time, which is like the everyday life is what's important. It's your family and your friends and going to Denny's at midnight, like little things. It's not the big things in your life that really make your life and make you happy. You know, I'm not chasing, you know, a trip to Africa. I just want the day-to-day life to be okay. Like I don't need anything that big. And I I just knew that from a young age. And yet the thing that I couldn't keep working was that I couldn't keep my friends. I couldn't, I couldn't make uh, jobs with my supervisors work out. I, like I wanted these collaborative, thoughtful, loving relationships. And I was trying so hard over and over and over again. And it wasn't good enough, you know, and I didn't know what the answer was, you know, and at some point when I realized that like, I was out of ideas. I was like, I just don't know what to do anymore. You know, I was very hopeful in the beginning that I'd figure it out because I could figure out anything. 
And it just, I, I kept losing people I really cared about because they were overwhelmed by me or they thought that I was arrogant or whatever it was. And it was just like, I don't know how to stop this from happening. And so it's constant chronic loss of really important relationships when all I want is important relationships. Yeah. And that is very isolating. And um, it's just like, it's hard to see the hope moving forward. And, and also, you know, it's like constantly having my own behavior narrated to me as something like toxic or unhealthy, like you're arrogant or, you know, you're selfish or whatever. And it's like, you know, you know yourself. And at least I'm super self-aware. I like tear myself apart all the time because my goal was to have good relationships. And so if I needed to tear myself apart to figure out how to do that, that was fine. And so I'm like, I'm not arrogant. Like I know that I'm not arrogant and I know that I'm not selfish. It's just, it takes me so much work just to do something someone else just thinks I should automatically know how to do, that they're not seeing that and appreciating that for the effort I've put into it. So it's like, Almost the better you get at looking like, you know, you're neurotypical and you're doing the social expectation, you're killing yourself just to get there. Then people use that as the starting point for compromise. And I'm like, (laughs) I've literally, that's all I've got. Like, I don't even think that's sustainable, you know? And um, so I think that's just a difficult thing, you know? And of course, before I knew I was autistic, the way I tried to fix everything was like, I just kept trying to seem more and more non-autistic. You know, I was listening and looking and seeing what other people were saying they wanted and, and, and what other people did. And I kept trying to mimic that more and more and more, which is part of what led to that burnout. Um, and now I know that that's not sustainable. So now I'm having to, to relearn that. And like, you know, you talked about earlier, you know, you don't want to fit in a box, right? You want to be yourself. But I think one of the hardest parts is that I've always, I've always been like, I've always seemed like I was very myself, even though I was trying still so hard to like give other people what they wanted. And now I'm left with this weird battle in my brain where I know that I'm supposed to learn how to be myself more from the beginning. Like don't give that perfect image up front just to get the the, the person yeah, yeah, or the yeah. job, right? Only to not be able to sustain it because you've gotten people on a, on a pretense of something you can't sustain and they're going to be disappointed or you're getting the wrong people, right? But like be yourself up front and then maybe you attract less people or less opportunities, but they'll be the right ones. They'll Absolutely. be ones that are more likely to be sustainable. This but is my, my dating head, strategy. <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, right. In my head, that feels like failure still mm. because I spent so long trying to not be myself. So now being my autistic self from the beginning or at any point feels like I'm failing at what I tried so hard for 30 years, the first 30 years to do, which is Wow. That's better. so complicated. That's such a tight ball of string to unwind. Yeah. But, so how has your life changed since getting your diagnosis? Because I mean, you diagnosed yourself, but then you went through the process and got the official diagnosis. So, yeah. you know, now you have the sheet of paper, you know, you have the degree, yeah. you can like wave yeah. in the air and it says autism I have on the it. Sheet of paper. And I yeah. think, you know, like the reason I did that by the time I went for the sheet of paper, I knew, yeah. I knew that I was autistic, but like you said, I was like, but how do I know? Right. Like yeah. that gaslighting, right. I, did I make it up? Did I just sound really convincing? Um, so I did want something. I also wanted something because I knew I'd get pushback from other people. I knew it'd be hard to get accommodations if I needed them. Um, and that's not something that's accessible to everyone. So I do want to make clear that like self-diagnosis is completely valid. And like anecdotally of all the people that diagnose people that are autistic, 
um, that are autistic themselves have like have said that they have never met a person who was self-diagnosed that wasn't autistic. Like mm. the person who's gone through all every assessment they can find online, they've grilled themselves, they looked at things. Like you know yourself at some point. When you're given the information, you usually can figure out if you fit that or you don't fit that experience, you know? Um, and so yeah, I mean, but getting the piece of paper was validating. Um and, you know, at first I was, was like so happy the day I got it. I got my little like 20 page report that detailed every behavior and every test I took and everything. And I thought like, that's it. My life's going to be better. Um, and that's when I realized like the process of unmasking, the process of being myself is not as easy as I thought it was going to be. And, you know, it's been four or five years now since that point. And, you know, I wish that I could say like, it was immediately easier, but it wasn't like, this is a, this is a battle that I have to work with myself now, which is trying to learn how to be myself when I've tried so hard not to be for a long time and how to set um, different measures of success. I already thought that they weren't super typical, like traditional, but now they're things like, it's okay if my career isn't a focal point. It's okay if I just get by, which is never something I thought before. Um, and it's okay to ask for help or support, which is, again, not something I ever wanted to do before. Um, so it's been a lot of work, honestly, to, to learn how to, how to be able to admit that there are some things about me that won't change. And in order to have a sustainable, like healthy life, I have to be able to ask for help and admit limitations and learn how to work with myself instead of trying to force myself into a different mold. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's been difficult. Um, I thought too, that work would be immediately easier. Now I can ask for accommodations. And of course, <laughs> that's funny now that I realize it and probably do a lot of other people who've ever tried to get accommodations at work, but they're not easy to get, you know, <laughs> like, you know, there's pushback, there's lack of understanding, like the process of going through the, um, like the accommodations process, uh, it's highly encouraged by the ADA, that is an interactive collaborative process between the employer and the disabled individual. And um, that's good and fine in some capacity, but it's really hard when you know yourself and you know what you need. And if, and it feels like your employer is sitting there trying to be like, well, what about this thing? And what about this other thing? And this, and you're like, no, I just told you what I know what I need, you know? <laughs> um, and so like that process was difficult. Um, I had difficulty at the last like traditional job that I worked um, it, with a manager and ended up having to, like, I had, I had to leave again. Like there's been multiple, trying to go back to work too fast, trying to do too much too fast and then hitting another wall because I wasn't, I wasn't repaired from the first burnout, you know? Um, so I went back to school and got my master's degree with the goal of like, I want to make um, one, I want to make a place that a job I can do, but I want to help uh, educate both disabled individuals on what they can expect from their workplaces and life and friendships and how to navigate their own diagnostic process and how to navigate accommodations in the workplace or accommodations at, you know, places that you, you frequent or visit, but also to help employers, you know, build that too, to understand that too. And beyond the legality, right? Cause it's so much, so many employers only want to do the bare minimum of what's illegal, but it's like, that's so short sighted because, <laughs> you know, the law never extends into happiness. It just doesn't. Yeah. Um, it, it, 
And so if you really, truly want your employees to be happy, you have to kind of blow open your thinking of just trying to do the bare minimum and to figure out how do we help every employee thrive. It doesn't really matter what their diagnosis is or their disability is. Like Everyone should have the tools they need to do well at their job. Um, And not everyone has a diagnosable anything but they still may have different needs than the yeah. general population. And that doesn't mean that that person also shouldn't have what they need in a workplace. And so that's, I think I've, one of the ways that I've like built a healthier relationship with my own self, my own identity is, is advocating for other people, but also experience the same things because I can have anyone else's back any day. It's I'm more hard on myself. You know, I, I, I have a harder time sticking up for myself, but I can stick up for anyone else. So I think that's been kind of the healing thing is just channeling it into that. And if you say, if I say 50 times in a week, all the benefits of being autistic and the autistic brain, it's really hard then to sit there with myself and tell myself that, you know, like I'm the exception, (laughs) like every other autistic brain's okay, but not mine. So I think that's, that's kind of what's been more helpful, but you know, going back to you said, like, would you rather be diagnosed early? I mean, that this is the price though. It's like, now I have a lot of work to do to undo the harm that was done from not having a diagnosis early um, and not having just an accepting environment early more so than even a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, but what an exciting place to be now where. Yeah. Thankfully yeah. it's now and not, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from yeah. now, like I'm still fairly young and I still had time to make a career change and, I still have like time, hopefully to, you know, I mean, honestly, I didn't have time before I, I lived my life. Like I had a um, terminal illness because I was so chronically depressed and dealt with so much suicidal ideation because I couldn't make life work. And I was exhausted that I lived every day. Like it was my last, because I honestly never, every birthday I was like, wow, another year, like can't believe we made it through that hell. Wow. Um, And so now I'm like, the first time I'm like, maybe I like, maybe I actually do have 30 more years or 40 more years. And I've spent my entire life since 14 thinking, I don't know if I'm getting the next year, you know? So I think that that this is the first time where I'm like, you know, when you have answers, you have something to work on, to understand, to like go from, but when you have no answers and you're exhausted, it's just like, at what point do I just like, what, when am I, when is my brain going to just expire? You know, like, when, <laughs> when am I going to hit a wall that like, it just doesn't work anymore. Like my brain yeah. just stops. Um, so yeah, I think like that's, that's like the benefit, you know, it, it'd be nice if getting a diagnosis was like, everything was better from that point on, you know, that moment and everything changed and everything was fine then. But the reality is that society is still not you know, you still have to reckon with the rest of the the world. And but it is a turning point. It's a turning point where things can start to improve. And I the thing that you talk about that excites me the most for you is this idea of finally allowing yourself to be yourself. Like masking is exhausting. And anyone with a chronic illness deals with masking. But when you when you are masking a piece of your personality, because you because you've been told over and over that it's not acceptable and that's wrong and you finally figure that out you know you finally have this piece of paper saying no this is who i am this is how my brain works and i then that's fine that's okay that's who i am and then finally accepting that piece of yourself integrating that into your sense of self um like that's that sounds like a really 
um, healing journey to be on. And I, I'm so excited to see what happens in the next few years as you continue. I mean, it's, this is a slow process, obviously, but <laughs> continuing this I wish work. It was faster. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like this comes easy or, yeah. or quickly, but if you make even the slightest bit of progress, uh, on any day, yeah, that progress will accumulate and you, and over time you'll see change and like, what an exciting place to be. So, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. What a fascinating story. Like, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's um, yeah. a lot that goes into it. And I think, you know, the, I think it's just important for people if they feel comfortable to keep talking about, you know, their process and their journey. Because if I had fallen into the crowd that I found out I was autistic, but I still thought it was wrong and I still thought that I needed to change it to that it was all deficit based, because that's still what's in the medical community at, by mm. large is that your brain, yeah, you're autistic, but you, it's deficit based. You're, you have social communication um, deficits. You have, you know, deficits with your ability to like function. You have verb, like you're nonverbal, and that's a deficit. It's all very like negative. And so that's, I think, what the important piece of of talking from a place of like accepting yourself or working on it is that like I think it's important for people to hear, especially when they're first finding out or figuring out in their journey that like it's it's okay to be different and like you like you don't need to change yourself regardless of what your disability is, right? You want to mitigate, obviously it's effect on your life, but sometimes mitigating that is by just not letting other people tell you that you're wrong for, for being that way, you know, like having that barrier to the environment. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one more question for you. Uh, If you could send a message back in time to yourself, I mean, you obviously, you made it through, but it was tough and you could have really used some words of support from someone who understood. So if you if you could send that message back in time, what would it be? To like childhood or to like when I first figured out I was autistic? To childhood. To childhood. Um, I think honestly, just the validation that my experience was my experience, you know, like it's what it isn't like everybody else's, you know, I think that was the most harmful piece of information that was given to me over and over again was everybody feels this way. Um, and, and I think people do that because they think that's helpful. Um, but when everybody doesn't feel that way, you know, it's like if your limb is broken in 20 places and everyone's like, Oh, well, everyone has arm pain sometimes, <laughs> you know, it's not helpful. Um, and so I think that that's the one thing if I could go back and if, if I was someone that, I, as a child would have respected who could have told me that, that I didn't, I, that isn't something everyone felt. Um, and that like, that someone was there with me to figure it out, or at least just validate my experience. I think it's just, yeah, the chronic invalidation of my own experience was the most damaging thing to me. Yeah. And it's not only that people are telling you that, you know, oh no, everyone feels, everyone has that. It's fine. Like, not only is that not true, but there are other people like you, you know, it's like, It's not yep. everyone. Not everyone but feels this way. People. But there yeah. are other people that feel this way. It's called autism. And, <laughs> and you know, there's, here's some research about it. Here's some things you can try that might help. Like, you know, there's so much that could have been given to you in that moment that wasn't. And that's so, yeah. so tough. And I'm, I'm just so glad you made it through that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what... You've, we've really gone on a journey on this story yeah. today. <laughs> you did a really incredible job. I mean, you obviously speak very well. You know, you've like really painted this picture. And I I feel like I have a much better understanding of what it is to be autistic than I ever have. So, I really thank you for that because what a gift. And the fact that we get to share that with the audience is so exciting as well. So, yeah. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Is there anything that you want to plug or direct people towards uh, social media, anything like that? Yeah. So um, social media is something I've just started because I'm so uncomfortable. Like, (laughs) you know, God, I made my first TikTok the other day and I was like, the process of making a TikTok is staring at yourself in a camera while you're talking to no one is difficult. But um, (laughs) yeah, I have, I just started a business called All Things Audie and Audie is the, you know, short for autistic and it's a the kind of endearing term um, for an autistic person used within the autistic community. Um, so it's all things and then A-U-T-I-E. Um, so I'm on Instagram and I'm on TikTok. So if anybody wants to even just has any questions or wants to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me from both those places. Um, and uh, like I said, I just graduated. So I'm about to start doing um, now privately consultations with businesses and and like life coaching with people who are fresh to getting their diagnosis and or going through the process and just need someone to talk to. So wow. I'm happy to, to hear from anyone that has any questions at all, even if it's just to point you in the direction of some of the online self-assessments and stuff like that that exist. Fantastic. Yeah. And I'll tag you uh, for for the podcast. We also have Instagram and TikTok, both at Major Pain Podcast. And I'll tag you on both if people want a quick and easy way to hop over. Perfect. Um, Yeah. But you you got so much amazing information in your brain and you've been through a real journey. And I, you know, I, I really, you've really changed my perspective a little bit today. And I really appreciate that. So just, you know, continuing to think about the way in which other people experience the world and how everyone's is different. And the more we can appreciate that and understand that the better our relationships will be and the better society will be. And it's such important stuff to think about. And, you know, I just, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Mina, you did an awesome job. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of major pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Matson, and All Around Foundation Waterproofing, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.